why should this be controversial? That's what I loved about him. It's like, you know, he's he's actually being very scholarly, very careful, just stating facts. Why should this count as quote unquote conservative or quote unquote taboo? When you have this tiny little resented market dominant minority basically controlling huge chunks of the economy and being resented by this large majority, if you do overnight democracy, you know, you suddenly say, okay, Iraq, time for elections. Or if in Vietnam, we'd said, you know, hey, let's have elections now. What do you think that large, impoverished, resentful majority is going to do? They're going to use democratic elections for revenge. you're going to see demagogues come in who just kind of mobilize people by tapping into deep social resentments and often playing the race card. And they will often, to the horror of elites, sweep to power with the elites not knowing what's going on. For the first time in U.S. history, we are starting to exhibit destructive political and ethno-nationalist dynamics that are much more typical of developing countries. We are starting to see our own version of a market-dominant minority. There is this new group, and they are the group you mentioned, that coastal elites are now being perceived by the rest of America as, in many ways, our own idiosyncratic version of a market-dominant minority. Once the political system gets taken over by political tribalism, it gets really hard to talk to each other because you just see everything through your lens. What's the point of even being in academics if you can't, you know, can't try to get at the truth and feel like you're some sort of robot that you have to say all the stuff that you don't even believe? I mean, just what's the point? This is one of the reasons I just have admired Thomas Sowell so much. I mean, he just has done this for like his whole life. And I have not been as brave as him, you know, because I we're in a it's a more intense period of cancellation threat right now. Oh, I got in trouble for that one. (laughs) All of these lines across my face Tell you the story of who I am So many stories of where I've been Got no one to tell them to. It's true. I was made for you. I climbed across the mountain. Welcome to episode 35 of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. I'm your host, Alan Woolen. The song you are hearing is called The Story and was written and performed by Brandy Carlisle. 
The story is one of my all-time favorite songs, and it's about how we all have a story which brought us from where we started to where we are today. All of these lines across my face tell you the story of who I am. So many stories of where I've been and how I got to where I am. Our guest today is a master storyteller who I believe deserves our attention. Her name is Amy Chua, and she is already world famous. But I'd like to reintroduce you to Amy in this episode. I reached out to Amy by email a few months ago because I had read an article about her and had this hunch she was a fan of Thomas Sowell. She wrote back right away, saying she was indeed a huge fan of Sowell's, and she even capitalized the word huge in her email response. A date was set for this September, and here we are today. I, like most people, first heard of Amy Chua with the 2011 publication of her best-selling memoir called The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. That book became the most talked-about book of that and the following year, and if you haven't read it yet, I highly recommend that you do. It's not too late. Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother is the true story of how Amy raised her two daughters using the ultra-strict, demanding, and achievement-oriented approach which she learned from her mother and is common in Chinese families around the world. The book contrasted this approach to the permissive, self-esteem-oriented approach favored by most Western parents, and it sparked a debate worldwide about which method is better for children. Well, it's been 12 years since that debate started, and I can tell you from my own experience parenting that the jury is still out on this one. The phrase Tiger Mom which Amy Chua introduced into the American lexicon, is alive and well in my family because my wife is a magna cum laude, phi beta kappa, board certified tiger mom in her own right. She's not Chinese like Amy Chua, but she is Indian, and her culture is similar in many ways, which we'll discuss later. Amy told me that she was a huge fan of Thomas Sowell, But what I didn't know at the time is that Thomas Sowell is also a huge fan of Amy Chua. When Amy published her first book in 2003 called World on Fire, How Exporting Free Market Democracy Breeds Ethnic Hatred and Global Instability, she sent a copy to Sowell at Hoover, and lo and behold, he loved the book and agreed to write a blurb for it. Here's what he wrote. A profound book written in plain English and challenging the very foundations of some glib and dangerous assumptions behind American foreign policy. This book should be read in the highest circles of decision-making, as well as by all those who like to consider themselves thinking people. Can you imagine writing your first book and Thomas Sowell gives it such high praise? Neither could Amy. And she tells us the story later in this episode. Sowell was also a fan of Amy's third book, The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, and he mentioned it in a column from 2013. He said this, When teaching at UCLA years ago, I once went into a library on a Saturday night 
noticed how many Asian students were studying and looked around in vain for any black students. How surprised should I have been when Asian students did better in the courses I taught? A few years ago, Professor Amy Chua of Yale caused a controversy when she wrote a book about Asian tiger moms who put heavy pressure on their children to succeed in school. But a more recent book, Gifted Hands, by black neurosurgeon Benjamin Carson, shows that his mother was as much of a tiger mom as the Asians. But that's not all. When Amy published her fourth book, co-written with her husband, Jed Rubenfeld, called The Triple Package, How Three Unlikely Traits Explain the Rise and Fall of Cultural Groups in America, Sowell said this. Professor Amy Chua of the Yale Law School is better known as a tiger mom because of her take-no-prisoners, tough-love approach to raising children. She and her husband, Jed Rubenfeld, a fellow Yale Law professor, have written what may turn out to be the best book of this year. It is titled The Triple Package because it argues that three qualities are found in spectacularly successful groups in America. These three qualities, they say, are a superiority complex, insecurity, and impulse control. Whether you buy their theory or not, you will be enormously enlightened by their attempts to prove it. In the process, they shoot down many of the popular beliefs about upward mobility in America and about the kinds of people who succeed. I have to admit, while I had read Amy's Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother back in 2011 when it first came out, I did not even know that she had written other nonfiction books. I first found this out after I had invited her on the podcast. And when I learned that Sowell was such a big fan of Amy Chua's, you know I just had to immediately start reading her older books. I started with her most recent nonfiction book from 2018 called Political Tribes, Group Instinct and the Fate of Nations, which I learned so much from. While I was reading that book, I said to my wife, I feel like I'm reading a Sowell book. There are so many stories and anecdotes from cultures all over the world, and it just feels so well-researched and documented. Plus, it's written in such an accessible way, I don't feel like I need a PhD in the subject to enjoy it. After that book, I read the triple package, and wow, 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 this book really blew my mind. And I told my wife that she simply must read this book. The Triple Package makes and supports in depth the argument that every successful cultural group in America has three key traits. Number one, a superiority complex. Number two, a deep insecurity about its place in society. And number three, strong impulse control, which is the ability to sacrifice short-term comfort and pleasure for long-term gain. Allow me to give you a taste of each of these traits from the triple package. Number one. In chapter three, titled The Superiority Complex, Amy and Jed talk in depth about four American subcultures which exhibit this sense of innate superiority. Jews, Mormons, Cubans, and the Chinese. Amy and Jed said this about Cubans. No matter how penniless, the Cuban exiles who arrived in Miami never identified themselves with, indeed separated themselves from, 
America's other relatively poor Hispanic communities. Most children of Cuban exiles, writes Cuban-born professor Miguel de la Torre, are taught by their parents and the overall exilic community that they are somehow different from other Hispanics, specifically Puerto Ricans and Mexicans. As they are instilled with pride for their heritage, these children are unconsciously taught never to allow anyone to confuse them with those other Latinos Latinas. In fact, Cubans learn to regard themselves as equal to, if not more advanced than, the North Americans in intelligence, business acumen, and common sense. The enclave the exiles created would eventually become the vibrant and prosperous Little Havana, and Miami the second-largest Cuban city in the world. About the Jews, Amy and Jed said this. In 1915, Louis Brandeis, soon to be a justice of the United States Supreme Court, made the following extraordinary statements at a speech in New York City. And what people in the world has a nobler past? Does any possess common ideas better worth expressing? Of all the peoples in the world, those of two tiny states stand preeminent as contributors to our present civilization, the Greeks and the Jews. The Jews gave to the world its three greatest religions, reverence for law and the highest conception of morality. Our conception of law is embodied in the American Constitution. For Brandeis, the persecution Jews had suffered through the ages was a point in their favor. Persecution, he added, had broadened the Jews' sympathies, training them in patient endurance, in self-control, and in sacrifice. It deepened the passion for righteousness. The idea of Jewish historical exceptionality made the concept of chosenness practically irrelevant. The point is not whether we feel or do not feel that we are chosen, declared Martin Buber, the Austrian-born Jewish philosopher. The point is that our role in history is actually unique. This feeling of historical uniqueness, seemingly proven by a 3,000-year record of survival and accomplishment, beats close to the heart of Jewish culture everywhere. In this chapter about superiority, Amy and Jed lead us on an absolutely fascinating and nuanced discussion about the flip side of the superiority complex, which of course is the inferiority complex which they assert permeates the black community in America. They say this. For most of its history, America did pretty much everything a country could do to create a narrative of superiority, moral and intellectual, political and economic, for its white population, and the opposite for everyone else. White supremacy was an equal opportunity discriminator, targeting all non-whites from the Indian tribes to Chinese coolies to Mexican laborers. For centuries, however, the central corollary of white superiority was black inferiority. Over and over, African Americans have refuted and fought back against the narrative of inferiority that the United States tried to impose on them, but its legacy persists. I won't go too deep into the subject here, but if you read the triple package just for this discussion, it alone is worth the price of the book. There's a reason Sowell said this book was the best book of the year, and I suspect this discussion was a big part of the reason he came to that conclusion. So check it out. Number two. About the insecurity complex, Amy and Jed wrote this. With striking frequency and remarkable consistency, members of these groups are afflicted with certain distinctive insecurities that, in combination with insecurities seeming opposite, a superiority complex, are especially likely to fuel a drive toward acquisitive material prestige-oriented success. Among the most powerful sources of these insecurities are scorn, fear, and family. Chua and Rubenfeld go to great lengths to describe how successful groups like Cubans, Iranians, Indians, Jews, and others tend to feel scorned by the larger society, how they harbor great fears of persecution and failure, 
and how one of their greatest fears is that of disappointing their parents and not living up to their parents' expectations of them. This fear is immortalized in dozens of Jewish jokes, some of which Chua and Rubenfeld tell in their book. They tell this one. A Jewish girl becomes president and says to her mother, You've got to come to the inauguration, Mom. The mother says, All right, I'll go, I'll go. What am I going to wear? It's so cold. Why did you have to become president? What kind of job is that? You'll have nothing but Soros. But she goes to the inauguration, and as her daughter is being sworn in by the chief justice, the mother turns to the senator next to her and says, You see that girl up there? Her brother's a doctor. But this same phenomenon is observed in other hyper-successful communities as well. Chua and Rubenfeld write this. The Jewish case may be the most spectacular, or at least the most satirized, and certainly the most psychoanalyzed. But the phenomenon of children feeling they must succeed in order not to disappoint their parents is of course far broader, with special prominence in immigrant families. Children who have seen their mothers and fathers working double shifts as maids or restaurant workers, devoting all their savings to their kids' education, often feel an internal pressure to live up to their parents' dreams and expectations, to make their parents' sacrifices worthwhile. Chua and Rubenfeld point out that this deep-seated insecurity runs counter to the American self-esteem movement. They say this. Insecurity as a key to success. Not exactly the lesson taught by America's self-esteem-centered culture, or its just-to-learn-to-love-yourself popular psychology. But for an individual to be driven, something has to be driving him. Some painful spur, some goading lack. Disproportionately successful groups disproportionately feel this insecurity. Thus, the second element of the triple package deals another blow to modern American mantras. Insecurity is the enemy, a pathogen targeted for obliteration. In popular and therapeutic psychology, not to mention contemporary parenting, there's an ocean of difference between zealously protecting self-esteem and actively promoting insecurity. Between just be yourself and you're not good enough, between you're so amazing, mommy and daddy will always be here for you, and if you don't get straight A's, you'll let down the whole family and end up a bum on the streets. Insecurity is not supposed to lead to success, but in America's most successful groups, it seems to do just that. Number three. About impulse control, Chua and Rubenfeld wrote this. Success in America today comes more often to groups who resist today's dominant American culture. Thus, impulse control is yet one more point on which America's successful groups aren't listening to the piper. Here's what America likes to tell Americans. Everyone is equal. Feel good about yourself. Live in the moment. Meanwhile, America's successful groups tell their members something different. You are capable of great things because of the group to which you belong. But you individually are not good enough, so you need to control yourself, resist temptation, and prove yourself. Chua and Rubenfeld use the famous marshmallow experiment in which children were tested on their ability to resist the temptation to eat a treat, based only on the promise that if they abstained, they would get double the amount later on, as an example of the empirical evidence behind the importance of impulse control for long-term success. I was going to pull a few more audio excerpts from this chapter for you to listen to, but there was a great show on Netflix that I really wanted to watch. Plus, my wife plopped a big bowl of popcorn right in front of me, so I didn't get a chance to get to it. Sorry about that. Suffice it to say that this chapter, like just about every other chapter in the book, is alone worth the price of the book. 
So if I've been too subtle thus far, let me be more explicit. Read the triple package right now. Don't wait. Sowell was so right when he said it was the best book of the year. You can thank me later. So with no further ado, I would like to bring Amy Chua onto the podcast to talk about her ideas, as well as her new novel, The Golden Gate, which came out on the exact same day as Sowell's new book, September 19th, 2023. Amy Chua, welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Alan. My pleasure. In 2004, you published your first book called World on Fire, How Exporting Free Market Democracy Breeds Ethnic Hatred and Global Instability. There was one blurb in that book which really jumped out at me, and it read, quote, a profound book written in plain English and challenging the very foundations of some glib and dangerous assumptions behind American foreign policy. This book should be read in the highest circles of decision-making, as well as by all those who like to consider themselves thinking people. It should provoke some rethinking and, for some, really thinking for the first time, end quote. Do you remember who wrote that about your book? Are you kidding, Alan? I, I mean, there's a whole story to this. Of course, that was Thomas Sowell. And you have no idea how this came about. He didn't know who I was. I was a nobody. I had just, um, you know, I, I'd gotten tenure at Duke. I'd never published a book before. And here I was with the book. And I was told by my editor, you're a total unknown. This is a shot in the dark. Um, try to get some blurbs from people. And I asked my own colleagues at Yale, I'm not going to name them. And they all turned me down. <laughs> so I, in a sh- just, kind of randomly because I had cited his work and admired him. I sent one of these. This is so long ago, Alan. It's like, I I think I, I don't even know if we had email or maybe we did, but it's like, I think I sent a letter. And when he agreed to blurb my book, and not only that, you know, obviously read it so carefully and then be so generous. I, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, this is a real scholar. He he didn't know me. He He could have ignored me like most people did. So I'm sort of forever indebted to him. But I also, that was the beginning of my admiration. You know, I just thought, wow, he really, um, he's a scholar and he's also very fair. Like, you know, he didn't need to do anything for me. So yes, that was the moment, eternal admiration on my part. Wow. Your first book. Yeah. You know, tell us about your experience with reading Thomas Sowell books over the years. Had, had you read a lot before you written that book and and, and a lot since? I mean, where, where do you stand I, with I it? have. I have. So he and I have a lot of interests in common. He was actually, so, so my own background is that my family is ethnic Chinese from the Philippines. So your listeners probably are among the few people who kind of know about this, but the ethnic Chinese in the Philippines only make up 1% of the population. It's a tiny percentage, and yet they control about 60 to 70% of the economy. So I didn't grow up there, my parents did. But I was always aware of this phenomenon and didn't know what to make of it. You know, for a while when I was little, I was like, this is weird. And so when I started writing my academic pieces, I realized that this is a really different dynamic than 
in a country like the United States. So I was looking around and Thomas Sowell's works, I think it was Migrations and Cultures was the first one I read. It was just like a little throwaway paragraph about entrepreneurial minorities. And that's when I started to realize it's not just the Chinese minority in uh, not just the Philippines, but Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Cambodia. But you know, he pointed out that the Lebanese traders in parts of West Africa, Indian minority in parts of East Africa. So I just started reading his work, and we don't we have different implications. Like he hasn't tended to really do foreign policy, but as you know, we just have a lot of common approaches to things, which is that. Why should this be controversial? That's what I loved about him. It's like, you know, he's he's actually being very scholarly, very careful, just stating facts. Why should this count as quote unquote conservative or quote unquote taboo? And that's kind of <laughs> the way I didn't want to be controversial, you know, but I just felt like, why is what I'm writing when I'm being so meticulous and documenting any every single fact? Why should it be con- you know considered? Controversial. So, so we, you know, I've cited his work throughout. I, I'm sure we'll get there, but we just keep having the same kinds of interests and accidentally refinding each other. In that book, you coined the phrase market dominant minorities. Now, I first heard you use that term in your later book, Political Tribes, Group Instinct, and the Fate of Nations. And the term immediately reminded me of Sowell's term, which he called, I believe, middlemen minorities. Yes. And there was one section of of the political tribes book, which really caught my attention. And that was when you talked about what was really going on in Vietnam during the war and how the American leadership totally failed to grasp a very, very key aspect of that war with uh, having to do with the ethnic Chinese in Vietnam. Can you can you tell us about that and explain that to us? Yeah, I was really proud of this chapter. Um, for once, I wasn't controversial. I had major Vietnam historians write me, complimenting me. So basically, the United States viewed the whole Vietnam War in terms of a Cold War lens. It was communist versus capitalism. And we were going to go in there and, you know, it, it was people were really scared. They're like, oh my God, you know, if Vietnam falls, then it, the whole area is going to go communist up. Uh, But what they didn't realize is that Vietnam had a tiny market dominant minority. This is going back to French colonialism. There was like, again, about a 1% population. They were known as the Hua and they were ethnic Chinese. They spoke Chinese. They lived insularly. They did not intermarry with Vietnamese. And it turns out that it was this tiny little minority that basically controlled the rice trade, most of all the retail, all the banks, essentially capitalism. So when we, the United States, went in there wanting to do good, we didn't realize that when we came in and said, okay, we are in favor of capitalism, um, you know, we're going to put in these capitalist policies, that every single one of our well-intentioned policies was perceived as only helping this tiny, hated little Chinese minority. And we just kind of missed that fact. You know, we we missed that there was a little bit of an ethnic difference. And also during the war itself, we tapped into all these kind of middlemen networks, um, you know, to kind of, con- uh, you know, bring food and supplies to our troops. Guess what? All of them were ethnic Chinese, even the brothels and the kind of a, you know, 
uh, you know, what soldiers do uh, when they're off. All of those institutions were also run by Chinese. So what I say in the book is we essentially went in there and because we were so blind to these specific ethnic dynamics, uh, we just thought, everybody just thought, oh, Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese, they're all the same kind of missed the fact that our policies right from the beginning in a way were doomed because when we said oh we want to put in capitalism the majority largely poor vietnamese saw this as only benefiting the chinese and and basically it was you know it was a total failure in, in the end so basically the the vietnamese majority had enmity towards the Always. chinese minority and because they were so successful and so wealthy and they controlled so much. Exactly. And also because they came off as very arrogant. You know, I've been very honest about this. This is my own family's community. They, the the ethnic Chinese didn't really go to the same schools. They often lived in their own neighborhoods. Saigon, by the way, um, now called Ho Chi Minh City, was very overwhelmingly Chinese. And they projected a little bit of this arrogant, insular attitude. But yes, a lot of it had to do with their economic success. Speaking of political tribes, if we look at modern day America through the lens of that book, what do we learn about what's going on right now? I feel like our own country is more tribal now than it, at any time in my memory. Absolutely. The political, the political and social divisions are everywhere I look. Republicans versus Democrats, Black versus White versus Asian versus Hispanic, coastal elites versus flyover country, men versus women. And now we've got boys versus girls. I mean, what are we living through right now? Help us understand why we're becoming so tribalized. Great. So for 20 years, there was World on Fire. Then I wrote a bunch of other foreign policy articles. One of my main positions was that the reason we keep screwing up our foreign policy, uh, for example, in Iraq, where this, this, the Sunnis were a, a resented market dominant minority, is because we were not familiar with this problem. We have a lot of problems in the United States, but basically the dynamic has been different. It's been one of an economically and politically dominant majority, you know, a white majority and many oppressed, uh, you know, smaller minorities. Of course, Thomas Sowell is right that some ethnic minorities, some religious minorities have always outperformed others, but it was not the situation where one tiny ethnic minority, say, controlled 70% of the economy. And I actually looked very carefully at at this throughout American history. Do, for example, Jews, who of course are unusually successful, do they control 70% of the economy? And it's never been true. Warren Buffett and Bill Gates are not Jewish, you know. Um, and so, so we had this different problem. So what I have written was that we do not have this problem of a market-dominant minority. My thesis in World on Fire is that when you have this tiny little resented market dominant minority basically controlling huge chunks of the economy and being resented by this large majority, if you do overnight democracy, you know, you suddenly say, okay, Iraq, time for elections. Or if in Vietnam, we'd said, you know, hey, let's have elections now. What do you think that large, impoverished, resentful majority is going to do? Well, 
They predict, <laughs> yeah, they, they will, they feel they're going to use democratic elections for revenge. And so over and over, I document in World on Fire that when you have this kind of democracy in poor developing countries with a market dominant minority, the poor majority will vote in policies that either confiscate the assets of the rich minority, like uh, in Zimbabwe, Mugabe said, vote for me, vote for me. And they confiscated you know, the, the white lands, or they will vote to kill the minority or expel them like the way Idi Amin did. So this is uh, in in Iraq actually this is a more recent example. I predicted this actually in the in the afterward of of World on Fire. This was 2004. I said everybody else is saying oh democracy is going to bring peace and prosperity but if you pay attention there is this really hated Sunni 14% minority that was basically you know the Sunnis were were dominant for 500 years. The Ottoman Empire was a Sunni empire and the British, when they came in, favored the Sunni minority. They loved divide and conquer policies. Saddam Hussein was a Sunni. So when you suddenly have overnight democracy and the Shias that are about 60% of the population finally get to vote, guess what happened? It's very predictable. They voted not for moderate, peace-loving policies, but they basically voted in extremist leaders that said, let's get rid of these Sunnis. Let's confiscate them. Uh, and when the Sunnis realized this, they said, you know what? This democracy thing is not working well for us. And that's when most of them joined extremist groups like Al-Qaeda and, and, and ISIS. So in the United States, back to your question, what happened is I had this light bulb moment. I was writing political tribes in, uh, I don't know, it was probably like 2015. I've been working at it for two years. And it was supposed to originally be just a pure foreign policy book. And this is hysterical. I was teaching my large uh, international business transactions class, you know, 100 students. And I was actually quoting from World on Fire. And I said something that I have basically been repeating for 20 years. And I said, in poor developing countries with a resented kind of arrogant outsider market dominant minority that is viewed as, you know, controlling all the levers of power. If you have overnight democracy, you're going to see demagogues come in who just kind of mobilize people by tapping into deep social resentments and often playing the race card. And they will often, to the horror of elites, sweep to power with the elites not knowing what's going on. And there's this total silence because this was literally three months after President Donald Trump had had win, won the election. And believe it or not, Alan, I was actually reading a passage about Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, right? But there was total silence in my class. And then I remember one woman raised her hand and said what everybody else was thinking. She said, uh, Professor Chua, what you described sounds exactly like what just happened in this country, because this was right after the November 2016 elections. And a light bulb moment went off. And I, I I, had three months to turn in my manuscript. I hired 30 research assistants, and I completely redid the book. And the thesis of political tribes now is actually largely domestic in a way. It's that for the first time in U.S. history, we are starting to exhibit destructive political and ethno-nationalist dynamics that are much more typical of developing countries. And the reason for this, bringing this full circle, is that we are starting to see our own version of a market-dominant minority. Now, it's not like developing countries. We don't have a little ethnic minority. The Chinese in this country 
Asian Americans are disproportionately successful, as we will get to, but they definitely do not control 70% of the U.S. economy. Um, And Jews do not either, and nor do the Lebanese, and nor do Nigerians. But what I say in this book is that there is this new group, and they are the group you mentioned, that coastal elites are now being perceived by the rest of America as, in many ways, our own idiosyncratic version of a market-dominant minority. And the analogy is not perfect, thank goodness, because it's a very destructive dynamic. But, you know, coastal elites do, in fact, wield unbelievably disproportionate influence. Uh, It is the case that wealth in this country is extremely disproportionately concentrated on the coasts and that our coastal elites today do control many of the same exact sectors that market-dominant minorities in developing countries control. So in Vietnam, the Chinese controlled finance, retail, all the banking system, the airlines, technology. And if you look at coastal elites, Silicon Valley, Wall Street, Hollywood, the Ivy League, Washington Swamp, whatever you want to call it. So that's what I wrote in Political Tribe saying, look, It's not too late, but we need to realize that we have a new dynamic now. Because if you think about what happened in 2016, President Donald Trump actually used a lot of the same rhetoric. He said, look, it's time to take back our country. You know, and all these people across the country that understandably felt like we we don't control the levers of power. We have no power. You know, it's whatever you want to call it, the the swamp or, or Wall Street or the bankers. We don't have any say. And and Donald Trump very effectively said, you know, he used kind of demagogic techniques. He's like, we need to take back our country. The reason that you're poor is because China is taking our wealth or the Mexicans are taking our wealth or these coastal elites are controlling everything. And they do not care about you. They care. They don't care about real Americans. They don't care about the real American majority. They care more about the poor in Africa or undocumented immigrants than they care about you. And that message really resonated. Um, and I think it largely explains how we swept to power and the coastal elites had absolutely no idea. You know, when I wrote that book, they, they, they just didn't know he was going to win. Whereas because I had started to do this research, I actually predicted that Donald Trump would win the election. And it's still happening now. I mean, we're not out of that period yet. Absolutely not. We're, we're Absolutely deeply, not. you know, we're knee deep in it still for 2024. Oh, yeah, I tried, you know, and I, there are quiet voices. And I actually think a lot of people are exhausted with this, this just bitter division. But it's very hard to get out of this political tribalism. Um, what I've seen in developing countries with market dominant minorities is once the political system gets taken over by political tribalism, it gets really hard to talk to each other because you just see everything through your lens, through your group lens. It's almost like like a football game, right? Like you have a team and you, you always tend to feel that your team is right and your team is better. And if somebody comes up with the fact that, or, you know, just some evidence that is like, you know what, maybe your team is wrong on this small point. You just don't want to see it. And that's the situation now. Like if you, you know, if you turn on Fox News or MSNBC, it's like you're talking about two different countries, you know, during COVID, because I have elderly parents, I literally had to flip between MSNBC and Fox News to try to figure out if a certain, you know, medication worked. (laughs) Um, Because it was like, if you're a liberal, then 
everything, every single thing that Donald Trump has ever proposed or tried has got to be wrong. And if you're a conservative, it's every single thing, um, you know, that or, or if you're, you're a Trump supporter, then anything the other side says is wrong. So you just have this total breakdown in conversation. And, you know, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty disturbing dynamic. Now, how has this polarization affected your career? You're a, you're a law school professor in one of the coastal elite schools, but yet you've been writing some very controversial things. And you, you remind me a little bit of another guest I had on the podcast, Amy Wax from the University of Pennsylvania yep. Law School. Um, she also became very controversial because she talked a lot about affirmative action. You know, ha- has this affected your career, you know, in the Ivy Leagues? Oh my gosh, yes. Uh, it's just not fun anymore. <laughs> uh, Amy has had it much worse. Alan, I used to, what I loved about teaching is, I guess I'm proud of this. I, I've always had an incredibly diverse range of students. In this way, like Dr. Sowell, you know, I have tons of minority students, but I also get a lot of conservative students. However, Yale is like 90% super progressive. So, uh, But I, gosh, for 20 years, my favorite thing would be almost to deliberately assign controversial topics like affirmative action or all kinds of things like immigration. And we would have these feisty debates. You know, one of my students was J.D. Vance, who wrote Hillbilly Elegy. And it was so different 10 years ago. Like his best friend, he was conservative. He was from Appalachia. His best friend was a lesbian woman. And they would argue and argue. And then we'd all go out for a beer. And everybody would kind of make up and you would see these friendships across lines and you could have conversations and I don't want to romanticize it. You know, you still would argue, but you could talk to each other and you could make small progress. Today, oh my gosh, I get so tense in my classes now. I I try not to cave. Like I insist on still having these debates, but it's not the same. Like I have to set the ground rules on my syllabus now. I have a huge big disclaimer that basically says, do not take this class if you cannot. This class is committed to lively debate across all political divides. You know, you're expected to treat everybody in this class as a as a member of your community. And I don't quite say this, but the message is, and if you hear something that sounds racist to you or misogynist or homophobic or xenophobic in this class, you can't just jump there. You need to raise your hand, express in a civil way your disagreement and listen, and we're going to do this. And so I've had a lot of success, but what I started, it's just not, it's not fun. Like it's so tense, you know, and I I do have to self-censor a little bit. Like I, there are a lot of words I won't use. I sometimes think it's foolish to do that, but I'm like, look, I have to pick my battles. I, I don't want to get stuck in some stupid thing. So I'm still very proud that my you know, as controversial as I've been, I actually just found out that my class has the longest wait list of any other course at Yale Law School. So in that sense, I've sort of survived. And this goes to the optimist in me. I I feel like there's a growing silent majority, Ellen. People are still too scared to say what they really think, which is tragic because we're, this is in the academy. And this is one of the reasons I just have admired Thomas Sowell so much. I mean, he just has done this for like his whole life. And I have not been as brave as him, you know, because I, we're in a, it's a more intense period of cancellation threat right now. 
So I just accommodate students more. But what I've done is a lot of students say, look, I want to express my views, but I can't take the risk because I want to have friends. I don't, I don't want to not be able to date, you know? So they send me anonymous comments. And now a lot of my class, this is something new in the last five years. I read these anonymous comments and it's not ideal because I would rather have my own students brave enough to say what they think, but it's a pretty good second best solution because, you know, it's honest. I read it and I see people nodding. So so it's been a big change for me in the way I teach and the way I talk. And it's just a lot more work, but I am, like Dr. Soul, kind of committed to it. Like, what's the point of even being in academics if you can't, you know, can't try to get at the truth and feel like you're some sort of robot that you have to say all this stuff that you don't even believe? I mean, just what's the point? Let's turn our attention to another book you wrote called The Triple Package, How Three Unlikely Traits Explain the Rise and Fall of Cultural Groups in America. Oh, I got in trouble for that one. (laughs) Sowell called that book, quote, the best book of the year. That was in 2014. And when I was reading that book, I felt like I was reading a Sowell book. That's how well-researched and articulated it was. Thank you. You That's a huge honor. And it's really true. You you make the case in that book that there are three traits which explain the disproportionate success of ethnic groups around the world. And I have to say that I found your description of these three traits absolutely gripping. And I had dozens of aha moments when I was reading the book. Please tell us what those three traits are. So these three traits are what I say kind of propel certain groups in America to disproportionate success measured in a conventional way, like income and education and corporate success. And the first trait is what my husband and I called a superiority complex, a little provocative, but by that, we just meant a deep sense of being special, a sense of exceptionalism. Just to give you an example, like the Jews have always been told that they were a chosen people, you know, special. Actually, the Mormons, another group, chosen people. I'm ethnic Chinese. I was always told, you're from the oldest, greatest, most magnificent civilization. But that trait alone, a superiority complex, absolutely does not lead to disproportionate success by itself because you could just be complacent. You know, oh, I'm so great. I could just sit back. It has to be coupled with a second trait that, believe it or not, feels like the exact opposite. And that is a sense of deep insecurity. You know, a feeling like, you know, people are, you're an outsider or people don't quite respect you enough or um, you're not mainstream, you're not accepted. And it's the the interplay between these two qualities, the sense that, you know, I'm I'm really smart or I'm really special or I'm a, a sense of, uh, my, my, my mother always said I was exceptional with this sense of being insecure that really creates drive, which is like, I've got to show everybody. I've got to prove myself. And the third trait that we raise is what we call impulse control. And this is just self-discipline, the ability to just not give up. And there are really group differences. So I think one study that we show is um, little kids doing some active impulse control. Let's say sitting, let's say a four-year-old kid. Okay. I think the test was with four-year-old children. How long can you sit and do something like play a puzzle, you know, or practice piano, something that requires 
sustained concentration. And the, this cultural difference was so huge. It was like for mainstream American kids, for four-year-olds, it was like two minutes. <laughs> and for, I don't know, like Mormon kids or Asian American kids, it was like two hours. You know, I mean, I don't have this exact numbers, right? But you really saw these stark differences that have nothing to do with genetics. It's really how you're raised. Anyway, those three traits, a superiority complex coupled with a deep sense of insecurity plus impulse control is what we argued drives certain groups to disproportionate success. And not just groups, Alan, it can be certain individuals that don't belong to an unusually successful group. You know, I mentioned Steve Jobs, you know, that's when I wrote this book 10 years ago. He practically said it himself. I mean, everybody knew that he had this huge ego. He was this big narcissistic personality, but he had such a huge chip on his shoulder. He just never felt he was good enough. And he even said that just what I, I just want to have to work harder and harder to show the world, you know, they have to realize that I'm special. And he had unbelievable impulse control, almost kind of OCD. He just, uh, you know, extreme self-discipline. Didn't he go to India to study meditation and and probably work on his impulse control? Probably that's probably I, why he was there. I, maybe. I don't know about that part. Yeah. But he's um, yeah, famously disciplined. Now, this whole discussion reminds me a lot about something that my wife and I are experiencing on a daily basis. We, we live in Los Angeles and we have four daughters whom we, wow. home, whom we homeschool. Uh, Amazing. I'm so impressed. I'm one of four daughters, so I know, I know what that's like. They're four, six, nine, and 11, and they all study classical music. They all play two instruments, either the violin or the cello and the piano. Wow. And so so we are deep, you know, knee deep in the world of, you know, classical musical training for 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 kids and and we go to a, you know, a, a place in Los Angeles where people, you know, go when they really want to study the violin and the cello and the piano. And what always amazes us is that it seems like something like 97% of the students there are Chinese. Yes, or Korean. Or Korean, yeah. Yeah. Um, but but even but even apart from the Chinese Korean distinction, it just seems like at least ninety percent are are, are are Chinese and maybe yeah. you know eight percent are Korean, right? And um, <laughs> there are no almost no Indians there, you know, very small. But and then another place we go is a, a, a mathematics school, yeah, uh, you know, where people go after the kids who go there go after school to get more <laughs> to get more math, right? I bet and there are a lot of Indians there. A lot of Indians, a lot of Chinese, yeah, and then our kids who are half Indian, half Jewish. So got it. Okay, that's the mix there. Just like my household, yeah. So my my wife has that sort of tiger mom tendency in her. You know, I mean, she she must to to get these kids to study two instruments. Yeah. So (laughs) and and these these math classes are not easy. They're two hour classes for these little kids. You know, so they're intense and. It it just really rang a bell in me that, you know, these three traits, I, I don't need a study to know that this makes sense because this is exactly what I'm witnessing, you know, day after day with, with our kids. And classical music is one of those things that you really have to spend hours and hours and hours to get even decent at. Exactly. It's not like, as you mentioned in your book, it's not like playing the drum in the band where, you know, it's like, it's pretty easy. Yeah. Like you don't have to practice that much to be decent at it, you know, but I, the violin is a whole different ball game. Yeah. You know, this is uh, where 
the triple package I wrote right after my most famous and notorious book, which was totally non-academic, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. And in a funny way, this kind of tough love tiger parenting is all about kind of instilling the triple package, right? Because I talk about a virtuous cycle, which is no kid wants to play the violin over and over. I mean, it's just hard. It's You're out of tune. It hurts your fingers. Of course, you'd much rather just go outside and play. But if you can tap into, you know, can get that discipline going and they get to a point, I remember my rebellious second daughter, oh my God, I can play this and people admire it and I sound good. You get a little bit of that sense of exceptionalism. And the when you get better and better, you know, when, again, I had a, a very rebellious second daughter, when she was able to play Mendelssohn on the violin and we almost killed each other to get there. It was really hard. It it did instill this deep sense of earned pride and self-esteem. And that's that's a, you know, when I see a sense of exceptionalism or superiority complex, it's very important, Alan. It's you I wish we could just give our kids this by saying, you're amazing. But that's not enough. It has to be earned. It's like you can only get a really deeply internalized sense of exceptionalism or you know, if you're if if you've earned it somehow, you know, if you're really good at something and or just have overcome something that you, you know, a challenge. So I I think I congratulate you. Classical music is something, of course, I made both my children do. And it does. It's there's nothing, it's not a coincidence that you're looking at that seeing the demographics like that. Confucian societies are famously, you know, almost to a fault serious about instilling impulse control and self-discipline from a young age. You look at these videos of what some kids in China can do. It's crazy. They're like three years old and (laughs) they could do these things. Um, And, you know, tiger parenting is a little bit, I think at its best, it teaches your kid, you're special. I believe in you. You know, the reason I'm being so strict with you is I really know that you can do this. I think you're brilliant, you're smart, you're talented, but you're not there yet. So right there, you have both that sort of sense of exceptionalism, but also a little bit of insecurity. It's not like, oh, you're perfect already. Go out and play. And lately, I've been very fascinated by an up-and-coming political star by the name of Vivek Ramaswamy. Yes, a good friend and former student of mine. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. (laughs) There's no question in my mind. And this is just my personal opinion that one day he will be president of the United States. I'm not I'm not sure if it'll be in 2025, 2029 or four years after that, but I'm sure it will be one of those. And when I was reading the triple package, I couldn't help but think of his Indian roots and the triple package theory. He also reminds me of the current prime minister of England, Rishni Sunak. Both of them are Indian, young, wealthy, self-made men. They both write books and they're both very conservative. I'm curious if you have any reflections about Vivek Ramaswamy seen through the lens of the triple package. Is he someone that has a chip on his shoulder and something to prove? Oh, yes. Uh, First of all, full disclosure, you know, I'm a a big fan and friends with Vivek um, and he was our former student. This is classic triple package. Vivek was the oldest child in his family. And from the beginning, he was just really gifted. And also he had Indian parents who told him he was really gifted. He's really smart. Um, At the same time, even though he hates talking about race, he's very much like Dr. Soul. He's very about being colorblind. He was a brown little kid in, in in Ohio and grew up like I did. I remember people making slanty eyes and making fun of my Chinese accent when I was little. But my dad always still said, 
so what? This is a much better country than where, where I came from, you know? But so he had that kind of natural sense of being an immigrant's kid that is a form of insecurity, even if you're very all about not wanting to be a victim, which I really admire, right? When I say insecurity, it doesn't mean that you have to wear it on your sleeve and talk about how insecure you are, but it's like a little bit of the sense of having something to prove. And on impulse control, I happen to know that he did all those math games you're talking about. He did those all those difficult classes and he's a phenomenal tennis player. He would go out and drill, drill like one move for like eight hours. So he is, I think, a classic positive example of a, of a triple package person. He has a lot of confidence, but he's not arrogant, right? He knows he's, he's actually a pretty good listener. He's always asking me, you know, like, how can I improve? How can I improve? I don't think I was perfect on this show. How can I improve? And that's actually how you get to be so successful. You have to, that little sense of insecurity is also what allows people to take constructive criticism. And if you want to make it all the way to the top, how did he get to be a billionaire at age 30? You have to not be stubborn. You have to say, okay, I think I'm smart. I believe in myself, but you know what? I can learn from other people or, oh, this was a mistake I made. I made a mistake. Now I need to you know, kind of minimize my losses and shift slightly. So he's, I think, a really good example of somebody. And he will credit his parents, actually, for for instilling pretty much exactly these three traits. I mean, they were not easy on him. One thing I noticed about him is he does quote Thomas Sowell quite a bit. Yeah, they're kindred spirits. (laughs) They're kindred spirits. Um, Yeah. Now, you you had a tiger mother who pushed you. You became a tiger mother to your two daughters as well. But it, it, it also occurred to me that you push yourself just as much. You're a professor of law at Yale, which can't be an easy job. You've written a bunch of books about very demanding subjects, which require a lot of in-depth research. And you just can't, you can't afford to get anything wrong. Too many people are watching. You wrote an incredibly successful memoir, The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. And now... You're stepping outside of your comfort zone, and you've written your first novel called The Golden Gate, which will be released coincidentally on the exact same date as Sowell's new book, September 9th. (laughs) What made you want to write a novel, and what are you hoping to achieve with it? Honestly, this I hope not to disappoint you, but I, believe it or not, maybe this is the lowbrow side of me. When I was little, I had really strict parents and we didn't get to go out and hang out with our friends all the time. And I was a huge bookworm, kind of a chubby kid with glasses and a Chinese accent. And my favorite place in the world was the El Cerrito Public Library. <laughs> and we, I would have to walk, like actually now I realize it was probably like about three quarters of a mile and I would carry these huge books back. And I have to confess, they weren't great works of philosophy. <laughs> I would just read mystery books. I First, it was all the Nancy Drew and Parker books, and then it was like every single Agatha Christie book. So I was just this, you know, immigrant's kid. And on the side, this was something that I just loved. So I've always loved novels. And I tried to write one when I, after I graduated from law school, I was a, a lawyer on Wall Street. And honestly, I was not very good at it. I thank you for your compliment. I worked very hard. I I think I think I did a good job, but I could tell in my heart that being a corporate lawyer just wasn't for me. I wasn't very interested in like securities law. And I could see, oh my God, I actually went through a crisis. I was like, all these other people, they love this. And I'm bored by this, you know, and did I make a huge mistake? Um, so I tried to write a novel. This is 
oh my gosh, this is like 1990. Um, most of you are not even born at that point. And it just didn't come together. So I ended up after, you know, leaving corporate law, kind of starting on this market dominant minority stuff. I started writing kind of autobiographically in a way, because again, this concept of entrepreneurial minorities is something that I know from my own family's background. And then I moved into the whole foreign policy and kind of cultural space. And one day I was in my parents' house. This is like three years ago. And it just hit me, this plot, which is, oh, okay, because the book is actually situated in the Bay Area in 1944, and it's a work of historical fiction. And so there are a lot of real characters that are fascinating, like Madame Chiang Kai-shek actually lived in Berkeley, California in 1943 to 44. Why? No one knows. So I built a story around that. Um, you, uh, August Vollmer, uh, was the, it basically founded American policing. He lived in Berkeley and all these other people. So I was in my parents' house um, in the Bay Area and it just suddenly hit me, this plot, and I won't give it away, but it's like, oh, it's going to open with a grandmother from one of the wealthiest San Francisco families being told by the DA, a prosecutor, there's a lot of law on this because I'm a lawyer, that one of her three granddaughters is a murderer, but they don't know which one. And then. I just had this idea with with a twist, actually like lots of twists. And it turns out my parents live right near this big fancy hotel, the Claremont Hotel. I didn't grow up there. I grew up in a dump, <laughs> um, but the American dream, you know. So, so my detective, who's mixed race, actually grows up and lives where I grew up, which is this terrible part. But up in the hills, there's this Claremont Hotel, which is still there now, right near my parents live. There is a real ghost story there. A six-year-old child died in the 30s um, and was found in the laundry chute. So to make a long story short, Alan, I just it just kind of hit me. And I'm like, I want to, I think, could I do this? Like, I've never really written fiction. And then COVID hit. And suddenly, I'm like trapped in my house. <laughs> we can't go anywhere. So I took a crack at it. And, um, you know, yeah, it's coming out in September. And, you know, we'll see what happens. It, it, was, it was really fun to write. I, I will say that. Well, I can tell you it was a success. It's it's a really good book and I, I've been enjoying reading it. I'm about two thirds through it right now. So I just still don't know who committed the murder. So oh, don't tell good. Me. I, yeah, I won't <laughs> give it away. I won't get, but you, you could see that actually buried in this are a lot of themes that have come out in my nonfiction books. A lot of my characters are immigrants and they, they kind of want to rise and just be successful. And I, I kind of, indirectly, even though it's a historical fiction written in 1944, deal with a lot of these issues of maybe more privileged people being self-righteous about things where you have poor immigrants saying, you know what, I just want to work hard and rise. You know, so But it's, it's largely not. It, it's really just supposed to be fun. And, and uh, it's supposed to be thrilling. So hopefully. Congratulations and good luck with it. We'll keep an eye on it. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about social justice and about Sowell's new book, Social Justice Fallacies. I sent you an advanced copy of the book, yep. which you gobbled right up. You said it was, quote, characteristically erudite, brilliant, and clear-eyed, and a pleasure to read. Now, what is your understanding of social justice? And what is Sowell trying to tell us in this book about what our society gets wrong on this subject? Well, I think he's just trying to puncture the whole idea 
that you know this there's this thing called social justice that is supposed to be this good that we're promoting i mean you know it's so characteristic thomas soul because he sometimes i get all upset you know i hear things i just like i i get incoherent like i, I see I, something sounds so stupid to me and self righteous or like posturing virtue signaling and he just doesn't do that he's just systematic i'm just going to lay out all the facts and and the book is new right i mean of course it contains uh, a lot of his ideas that he's famous for. He's a he's a coherent person. He knows what he believes in. But it does bring us up to date to the most recent problems that we're we're dealing with now. And, you know, I would say a common thread that makes it very characteristic Thomas Sowell is he just says, look, a lot of what well, he's he tries to be generous. A lot of these social justice policies that are supposedly helping minority groups, African Americans, other groups, People are too terrified or maybe too excited about hearing their own voice to subject them to empirical tests. Like, are these policies actually helping the people that we say they're supposed to be helping? And he pretty much demonstrates no. You know, I mean, I mean, like a lot of um, that it's almost more, it's almost like more for other for people's identities, like, oh, I want to have something to march about and protest about. But it's actually kind of his point. It's it's almost insulting to the to the groups that he that they are claiming to want to help. And for one thing, they won't even listen <laughs> to, to to everything. So I think he I I think he it's 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 fallacies. It's social justice fallacies. And it goes through and it's very comprehensive. It's not just about race. You know, he talks about economic policies. Um so I think it's a really fast read and it's a great encapsulation of all of the different themes he've, he's, he's kind of touched on over the years, but it also brings us to kind of 2023. Amy Chua, thank you for joining us on the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Ellen, thank you so much for having me. All of these lines across my face tell you the story of who I am. So many stories And now I got to where I am But these stories don't mean anything When you got no one to tell them to It's true I was made for you This has been episode 35 of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. If you like this podcast and want to support the work we are doing, introducing more and more people to the ideas of Thomas Sowell, there are many ways you can help. Rate and review this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Tell your friends about Sowell and the podcast. Support us on Patreon. Purchase our Thomas Sowell quote post-it notes. Follow me on Twitter for daily Sowell quotes and to connect with other fans of You Know Who. For now, just sit back and enjoy this live performance of the story by Brandy Carlisle.
You see the smile that's on my mouth It's hiding the words that don't come out And all of my friends who think I am blessed They don't know my hand is a mess No Thanks for listening.